Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see your faces here and there, and we long for the day when all of you there are here, and we are all together again. But until that time, we do the best we can, right? And we just all come before the Lord in a way that is challenging, difficult, uh, sort of muddy, but God is gracious, and He understands our weaknesses, and He understands our situation, and He extends grace and love, and I hope He will do that for each one of us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. About 15 years ago, my wife and I uh, used to watch a show that featured a nutritionist on her quest to get people eating well and becoming healthier people. The show was called You Are What You Eat, and they used a lot of humor, but it was also in this sort of in-your-face graphic approach to shock the audience into realizing what we're doing to our bodies and the consequences of ignoring good nutrition. In other words, it was an absolutely disgusting show to watch. Because much of what we eat and much of what we do to our bodies is disgusting. It was amazing, though, as I watched it, to learn that in many ways, you really are what you eat. Fascinating. Uh, for years, I've been exercising, trying to lose weight, and someone said to me one time, you can never out-exercise your diet. And then it dawned on me, I can't go exercise, then go home and eat a wheel of brie cheese. That doesn't work. See? Disgusting, isn't it? I've already ruined the sermon for you. Our diet forms us physically, but also... It's common knowledge now that we are psychosomatic beings. There's this profound and constant interplay and impact of body on mind and soul and vice versa. Our food is forming us. It's forming us physically and mentally. Another thing that's striking is that in the Bible, food is so integral to our humanity and integral to the story of God with humanity. Think about it. The very first sin was acted out by consuming forbidden food. Uh, there's a little obscure story in Genesis about Abraham meeting the three divine visitors at Mamre. And the event, the big event that goes into detailed description there was that Abraham prepared a meal for these three visitors. So if we see these visitors as a divine theophany or a pre-incarnation of God, mysteriously with Abraham at that moment, the celebration, the moment was celebrated by a meal. And then there's Passover. The salvation of Israel itself was the meal of a sacrificed lamb. Significant moments in temple and worship history, such as the arrival of the ark into Jerusalem with David, 
or Solomon's construction of the temple were punctuated by sacrifice and great feasting. And of course, the Last Supper, when our Lord was betrayed. And then ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth, when everything is finally set right, what is it that the book of Revelation describes? It's a great banquet, a great feast around the table. The link between food and God is understood in this notion of desire, or we could use the word love. Now follow me here. Hunger is our most basic and most dominant drive, and our desire to feed ourselves isn't simply an involuntary biological impulse. We feed ourselves because we love ourselves, and because we love the food. There is desire tied up in eating. It isn't good enough to prepare the food, to place it on the table, and simply smell it. How torturous is that? Now you know how your dog feels. <laughs> the food has to get in us. It has to fill us. It has to nourish us. That's the word that appears in this passage in Ephesians. Be full. All the fullness. Get filled. It has to get in us. It has to satisfy us. What we eat is what we love. Eating and desire or love always go together. And I want to suggest to us this morning that just like we are what we eat, spiritually, we are what we love. All human beings, doesn't matter if you're outside the church or inside the church, are essentially and ultimately lovers. This is who we are. This is our basic makeup. This is the way we look at and live in the world. We love, we desire. Many great thinkers down through the ages have wondered, what lies at the essence of our identity as human beings? Who are we? What drives us? Some have said, rational thought. Others, belief, and on and on. But others, and I think the Bible testifies to this, have described human humanity as beings who are driven, structured, oriented toward our world, first and foremost in terms of love. Now, love is a word we use in lots of contexts, right? To mean all sorts of different things. We love our sports teams. We love certain essential oils. Uh, we love a landscape. We love the mountains. We love our children. We love our spouse. And even though some of those loves are significant, we're not talking about all of those indirect loves right now. That's not what I mean. When I say we are what we love, I'm talking about ultimate love, ultimate desires. This love is what, we, is what controls how we envision the good life, how we live in the world, the ultimate reality to which we pledge our allegiance. What we love, what we feed upon, will determine what kind of people we will really be. Uh, some years ago, I heard uh, astronaut Scott Kelly 
speak after his return from a year in space. A year in space. Some of us have been dying being stuck at home during COVID. Can you imagine a person who would volunteer to isolate himself for a year in outer, literally in outer space? It's got to be a pretty ultimate love to get someone to do that. And interestingly, in his press conference, after he returned back to Earth, he shared why he did it. He said, his words, the highest privilege a person can have is to serve their country. And so that's why he did it. Scott Kelly was willing to sacrifice a huge portion of his life away from all of those people in his life because he loved his country more. He had a greater love, an ultimate love, that surpassed all of these horizontal loves we tend to think about. But for Christians, we think of ultimate love very differently than he does. So we're motivated to do different sorts of things. To teach English to refugees and immigrants who are trying to fit into a new culture. And we do that because God welcomes the stranger and the foreigner into his family. And we were strangers and foreigners at one point in our lives, the scripture tells us. We are motivated to forgive our enemies. Even when those enemies don't ask for that forgiveness, because our Lord hung on a cross and asked the Father to forgive his tormentors and executioners. I mean, honestly, Christians don't even have enemies. And perhaps we should pause and reflect and reflect on that for just a moment. Is that the kind of life we really do love? And how successful are we at living that kind of life? Where our ultimate love is tied so closely to our Lord that we find ourselves saying and doing things that make no sense to the world around us. Is it safe to say that sometimes we love God and others very well, and sometimes not so well? Would we agree that when sin creeps into our lives, it's a sure sign that our love for God has diminished? I mean, it's even hard to admit it, isn't it? God, I love the junk food more than I love you. I am loving the anger more than I love you. I am loving nurturing that bitterness more than I am loving you. On and on. It's a devastating thought, really. If I am what I love, and my love is that fickle, then what hope is there for me? Will the good, healthy, full life of God always be elusive? Language matters. And there's a crucial word in that phrase. We are what we love, not we are because we love. In other words, it's not our loving that gives us our identity. It's the object of our love. 
It's the thing that is loved that creates our identity in us, that shapes us. And here is where Ephesians takes our wobbly lives and sets them on a rock. The apostle says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, this love is the love of Christ dwelling in us. It's not our fickle love that comes and goes, but the unchanging, glorious riches of God's love in Christ for us that is shaping us. And the prayer is that we will be, passive voice, rooted deeply and established in that love. It is when Christ gets in us and we feed on Him in word and in sacrament that He fills our lives with His Spirit and we find ourselves stable. We must regularly preach to ourselves that Christ's love for us is not dependent on how successful we are in being good. We are up and down. But Christ's love is constant. He can never love us more or less than He already does. And there's nothing we can do to change that. And I would say to you, stand on that solid foundation. I have made a number of poor decisions over the years. I'm sure you have too. But about 15 or 16 years ago, I made an especially terrible decision. I agreed to go deep sea fishing. Has anyone gone deep sea fishing before? Some of you are as foolish as I am, clearly. It uh, sounded like a good idea at the time. It was 4th of July weekend off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina, which means it was about a thousand degrees out. And three of us set out for the edge of the continental shelf, about 65 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. All of this sounded great to me before I went. Early morning, just before we left, the guide said, rather ominously, it's a stiff wind out there, boys. Now, it did not feel real stiff to me when I was standing on land and not in the boat. Rather gentle. But a modest breeze on a dock, I discovered, can be much worse miles out into the ocean. Now, I'm going to spare you some details. If you've ever been seasick, you know that death is a welcome friend at that moment. I survived. I'm here. But a funny thing happened as I returned back to land. The moment I stepped out of the boat onto land, the sickness went almost entirely away. Just at that moment, I've, I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite as bizarre. One moment I feel like I'm going to die and then kind of hoping to, and the next moment, gone. Let's go home. You know, when we hope for a full life, based upon the success of our own love and performance, we just get seasick. But the moment we step onto the solid foundation of the eternal love of Christ for us, 
then we have health and fullness of joy. And He has given us the means for that. He has given us word, sacrament, and His body to fill us with the very life of Christ. Rooted and established in love, that you may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Running over. He's just repeating himself. That you may know the thing that surpasses knowledge. That you can be filled to all the measure of the fullness. What is that, Paul? I have no idea. It's just bigger than I can even possibly imagine. The love that surpasses what we can possibly get our heads around. The fullness that's stronger than the cancer of our sin. That you may be filled. Get it inside you. Be filled up. Feed on the love of Christ. And we will become Christ for the world. His glory will be our glory. His love will be our love. His power will be our power. And we can't possibly comprehend the extent to which He goes to fill up our lives with His love. Over the years, one of my spiritual guides has been the late Eugene Peterson. In commenting on this text, Peterson tells a story, and I can do no better than just to give it to you, so bear with me. Peterson writes, two friends, Fred and Cheryl, went to Haiti 25 years ago to pick up a child they had adopted. Addie was five years old. Her parents had been killed in a traffic accident that left her without a family. As she walked across the tarmac to board the plane, the tiny orphan reached up and slipped her hands into the hands of her new parents, whom she had just met. Later, they told us of this birth moment, how the innocent, fearless trust expressed in that physical act of grasping their hands seemed almost as miraculous as the times their two sons slipped out of the birth canal 15 and 13 years earlier. And that evening, back home in Arizona, they sat down for their first supper together with their new daughter. There was a platter of pork chops and a bowl of mashed potatoes on the table. After the first serving, the two teenage boys kept refilling their plates. Soon the pork chops had disappeared and the potatoes were gone. Addie had never seen so much food on one table in her whole life. Her eyes were big as she watched her new brothers, Thatcher and Graham, satisfy their ravenous teenage appetites. Fred and Cheryl noticed that Addie had become very quiet and realized that something was wrong. Agitation? Bewilderment? Insecurity? Cheryl guessed that it was the disappearing food. She suspected that because Addie had grown up hungry, when food was gone from the table, she might be thinking it would be a day or more before there was more to eat. Cheryl had guessed right. She took Addie's hand and led her to the bread drawer and pulled it out, showing her a backup of three loaves. 
She took her to the refrigerator, opened the door, and showed her the bottles of milk and orange juice, the fresh vegetables, jars of jelly and jam and peanut butter, a carton of eggs and a package of bacon. She took her to the pantry with its bins of potatoes, onions, and squash and the shelves of canned goods, tomatoes and peaches and pickles. She opened the freezer and showed Addie three or four chickens, a few packages of fish and two cartons of ice cream. All the time she was reassuring Addie that there was lots of food in the house. That no matter how much Thatcher and Graham ate and how fast they ate it, there was a lot more where that came from. She would never go hungry again. Cheryl didn't just tell her that she would never go hungry again. She showed her what was in those drawers and behind those doors, named the meats and vegetables, placed them in her hands. It was enough. Food was there, whether she could see it or not. Her brothers were no longer rivals at the table. She was home. She would never go hungry again. Thanks be to God.